Welcome to Tech Empire. I'm your host, Michael Quet. Today's episode is part two of our conversation with Iyad al-Baghdadi and Belabes Benkrada. Iyad is a world-famous activist who came to prominence during the 2011 Arab Spring uprisings, and he is regularly featured in mainstream press for his commentary on current events. Belabes is an award-winning social innovator, open debate advocate, and founder of the Munathera Initiative an Arab online television debate forum that promotes the voices of youth, women, and marginalized communities in the Arab public. Today we will be talking about Saudi Arabia and the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the use of tech for government repression, freedom of speech, Palestine, Iyad al-Baghdadi's life journey, and the role of the U.S. in the Middle East. Without further ado, here's part two of our conversation. Let's turn to Saudi Arabia. We have Jamel Khashoggi. You knew him personally, is, is that right? Yeah, he was a friend. Um, can like, you speak yeah. a little bit uh, about uh, these events? This is Iyad al-Baghdadi. Um, he, Jamal did not, did not deserve what happened to him. And, you know, it's kind of emotional speaking about, about it now because, uh, I mean, I know, I know more than I can share uh, because... I have been doing reporting around this and trying to basically dig into. And the thing is, when when you're a big figure on social media around the topic, people start leaking information to you. Uh, so I have certain sources that I'm I I mean certain information that I can't really um, share. Um, but it was very brutal um, and very tragic and very criminal. Um, Jamal. I, I would describe him as he described himself as 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 a journalist, right? That was the identity, the professional identity that he was most proud of. And even when he came, I mean, the, I last saw him in Oslo in May uh, when you know I kind of invited him to the Oslo Freedom Forum in Norway, um, and he registered as a, as a journalist. As you know, as he got a press card because that's the that's the you know that's the identity. That's that's what how he wanted to experience it, right? Mm. This is Belabes Benkreda. And that's how he came across, right? Because that's when you introduced him to me and I had that conversation with him. Yeah, basically just there to ask questions. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think Jamal, you know, being, being uh, you know, 59 or 60 years old uh, and being someone who, who's kind of old, he, he, someone like him could easily be old guard, elite, um, you know, um, uh, ruling establishment kind of person. Um, what was really heartwarming about his his journey, I guess, is that he was so transformed by the Arab Spring, and he said that to me. I mean, we had we had we had recorded an episode with him in, 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 in earlier in May, and he said the Arab Spring changed me, and changed him at a fundamental level to the point that. Uh, he started, you know, this 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 guy is basically a creation of the of the of the Saudi state. He's he's a Saudi nationalist. He's a proud and patriotic Saudi, yeah. and he believes in the Saudi royalty. You know, he he believes in the Saudi monarchy. He wanted reforms. He didn't want exactly a repeal of the you know of of, of the of the system. Of the system. Uh, so he wasn't a revolution. He didn't even call himself a, a critic or a dissident. He simply he simply described himself as a journalist for expressing his opinion. Um, 
So I guess he he was that figure who you would feel that you could sit with him, you can have disagreements with him. And uh, for for a, for a very long period, like between I think between 2014 um, and with the rise of the counter revolution, etc., we were very frustrated with him. We we actually had long rants between you know, between me and my friends and my team about uh, something that he would would have written or something would ha- he would have tweeted. And we were very frustrated with with a lot of his positions. But at the same time, we felt that this is the guy we can actually sit down with him and have a conversation around shared values and convince him. And he would change his mind, and he would say, "Yes, you were wrong, and I was, uh, you know, I, you you are you're right, and I was wrong." Mm. And, and he was the guy who would like pat you on the back and say, "I completely understand, but you need to be patient." You know, several times I had had conversations with him over messages, um, and I would respond like I would respond to him or you know uh, reply to him on Twitter, and he would message me, and and he's like, uh, he's like, I, and I remember the, this particular incident where. Um, he was giving advice to people who, like, he had he had been exiled, so he had chosen self-exile, and he was ba- basically speaking to people within Saudi Arabia who are still within Saudi Arabia, uh, young people particularly. And he's like, "This is my advice to you: uh, avoid confrontation with the regime. Don't get yourself arrested, um, and work on yourself. Work on your career. Work on your, uh, you know, uh, on your education. Work on yourself because you're going to be needed." Right. And I responded to that and said, you know, like, it's not like the authorities are rational. And it's not like if we avoid confrontation, they're they're not going to arrest us. Mm. Right. Like, even if you avoid confrontation, it doesn't it doesn't make you it doesn't make you safe. Mm. And then he messaged me uh, and he's like, um, yeah, what do you want me to say? Do you want me to say go and confront them? He's like, this is the best I can say. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I know, I agree with you, but I'm not going to come, come out and say it. Mm, mm. I'm, I'm speaking to young people who are like, who, who want to do something, and I want, I want their safety, mm, right? Mm, mm. And I thought about, I'm like, yeah, you're right, you know. Yeah. So he was that guy you can actually have these discussions with, and of course, he's incredibly resourceful, incredibly um, um, well connected, and. There is another side of him that came out in after his exile. You know, like we started to see an activist in him. We we almost felt like he's gravitating towards towards us. Uh, a, a famous Saudi uh, women's rights activist described him as a as a work in progress. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's really amazing that I'm still talking about him in present tense. You know, it's uh, he he doesn't he doesn't deserve what happened to him. But but on. You know, there are people who are describing him as the Saudi Bouazizi, and you know if you, if you know anything about the Arab Spring, you know Bouazizi. Bouazizi was the young man who who, who uh, set himself on fire in Sidi Bouzid in Tunisia and sparked the whole revolution. And of course, this is a completely different situation. But this is a man who, in his death, potentially has achieved uh, a more trans more transformative, tr- who brought about a more transformative moment. Mm-hmm. Than had he written a thousand op-eds in the Washington Post, um, and it's up to us right now. This is like this huge weight and huge responsibility to make it, to make them pay, and to make this count. He's absolutely a martyr of the Arab Spring. And now, when you say that, like we were talking earlier about what was has been effective in the Arab Spring, and you had said non a lot of times nonviolence. Uh, 
when I was in South Africa, even though the stakes were much lower, we weren't getting killed. We weren't really feeling like we were going to get killed. I, I won't speak for everybody. Um, there was fear. But one of the things that we did is we, sh we shut the universities down forcefully. And it, it wasn't enough for us to um, – I mean, we started resorting to things like vandalism. There were burnings that w were were uh, buildings that were burnt down, and part of what came out of that for me is that if you don't disrupt and shut down the normal functionings of society, then the likelihood of making real, tangible change um, tends to go down. And you can't just wave a sign in the air and call that a protest. And so it's like getting on your knees and saying, please change, you know, and, and give this to us. So in, in terms of, you know, methodologies, uh, and obviously the dictatorships have a, a monopoly on violence or they have the upper hand, to be sure. What do you see as as the, the, the tactics here? And is it is I mean, it's, can we talk this out more or is, is it just have to be that there needs to be more disruption? Well, I mean, my, my thoughts on nonviolence are really uh, shaped by Gene Sharp, um, who, who sadly he, he passed, uh, I think, early in 2018. Um, and he wrote incredibly um, detailed and very thoughtful um, books on the topic of nonviolence. And he describes this, he describes this, re des describes this, sorry, he describes, yeah, so he describes nonviolence really as a strategy more than tactics. Um, and he describes the way that it works is really by denying, denying consent to uh, the authorities. So it's, the idea here is that the dictator or whoever the oppressive power is, they can't actually... Um, so, so for example, when when someone like Mohammed bin Salman, for example, decides that I want to build a bridge, that's the crown prince, to, of, crown Saudi prince of Saudi Arabia. I want to build a bridge, or I want to, uh, you know, I, I want to shoot a bunch of people. Or exactly, he's not going to physically go and do it himself. He's going to go. It's go, this is going to propagate uh, down the chain of command, right? Uh, so. So the the currency here, the currency is co is is consent, and what you really want to do is deny them consent, deny them the consent of the population, and that's how you disrupt, as you said, disrupt the the regular function functioning of the state. Um, and of course, it's the, I'm 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 hyper simplifying over here, but because when we say nonviolence is a strategy, it means that sometimes you actually have vandalism as tactics. Sometimes you actually have, for example, like Martin Luther King, for example, he had a handgun for self-defense. It's like self-defense is not does not contradict with uh, with nonviolence. Um, so, so my thoughts here are basically shaped a lot by uh, you know these thoughts about strategic nonviolence, and also on the fact that, uh, and this really comes up a lot in in, in my book on, on you know the vicious triangle, the fact that violence. Um, I mean, dictators would love to make this a fight. They would love to make it about violence because they have bigger guns, right? Uh, so what, what violence here achieves is that, and of course, uh, and you can notice that they actually push us towards violence because they want to justify the crackdown, you know, the violence response. 
they might, you know, send infiltrators or, you know, uh, or even cast you in a light like like Israel does this a lot of the Palestinians, with the Palestinians to cast you in a light that this is a violent protest. Right? This is not this is not an, a primarily nonviolent thing. Um, so eventually violent resistance ends up actually um, forcing the hand of the state rather than disrupting the state. It actually gives it, especially this is this is like uh, uh, especially poignant, especially important after the war on terror. Uh, you know, with you know, and, and I think the, the war on terror is one of the most terrible uh, episodes I think in, in modern history because the war on terror is completely nihilistic. There's no values. There's mm-hmm. absolutely no values. Uh, and the war on terror created this legal and um, um, I would say the war on terror created this um, almost legal justification really for putting security above everything else mm-hmm. to the point that the moment, like if you want to rule a country forever, give it a touch of terrorism and then rule it forever in the, in the, in the name of fighting terrorism. This is the way that Mubarak ruled. This is the way that Assad has consolidated his rule. And of uh, course, and how Sisi and others are ruling today. Exactly. And that's why I'm a very strong advocate of nonviolence because violence has been not only is it catastrophic. I mean, there are other reasons, there are other arguments as well. One of the our, our episodes, one of our early episodes on the Arab Times Manual podcast, has been about nonviolence, and you know we we mention a lot of uh, you know a lot of arguments in that. Uh, and of course, it's a very wide topic, um, but I think, um, I mean, I think that for me, the biggest argument for uh, nonviolence is really the fact that violence only. Um, it only helps um, the dictators. So, if you're gonna uh, look at, say, let's say that let's let's, I mean, some of the themes that we've been talking about here include digital repression in the evolution of using technology in ever more sophisticated ways, and as well as you know, speaking up in in, in freedom of speech and censorship, right? Um, looking at the Israel. Palestine conflict in the United States, there has been growing support for the Palestinian cause. There's been growing support on college campuses, but it still tends to be a controversial thing. It tends to be the kind of thing uh, that is maybe risky to for a, a writer, for an author, to or a professor to put themselves out there and say, "I stand up for the Palestinians on this." Whereas in other countries, say when I was in South Africa, everybody is, you know, they consider this apartheid. Um, and that's the country that experienced the most intense form of, mm. of apartheid in history. We know that over the weekend, Haaretz reported that Israel's cyber spy industry is helping world dictators hunk dissidents and gays, that Private companies are selling espionage and intelligence gathering software to Bahrain, Indonesia, Angola, Mozambique, the Dominican Republic, Azerbaijan, Swaziland, Botswana, Bangladesh, El Salvador, Panama, and Nicaragua, mm. um, all sorts of places. And an example here would be if uh, of, of, of abusive technology was if, quote, someone was critical of the president's move to raise prices, someone... Uh, someone else shared a hashtag identified with some opposition, and uh, in, in 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 and in an instance they're both on the surveillance list. Um, so there's a range of products that they're that they're selling, 
and then also the 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 Palestine issue seems to be a, a major issue in the Arab world. It's symbol of great symbolic importance. Um, how do you see the role? Explain the role of of Israel in this regard, and you know the technology, but also. Um, the importance of the conflict. Do you do you see it as being something that is central to peace in the Middle East, or is it that time passed and have things spiraled out of control in Syria and Yemen, such that it's not as, as central anymore, as important as it is? Well, let's start with with uh, Israeli uh, technology, basically um, helping increase the resilience of a lot of authoritarian systems. Uh, this is a fact, and this is something that we have been noticing for years. And uh, okay. it's one of those things where we have been studying this for a long time. We've been subjected to surveillance by, uh, you know, by by these, uh, you know, technologies. Uh, technologies. Uh, and we have been raising the alarm for a long time, and nobody listened until now. Mm. You know, now with you know with this coming to the fore, and um, uh, especially with with uh, with uh, Jamal's murder. Um, so yeah, I mean, my former country, the United Arab Emirates, uh, works very closely with the Israeli tech companies and is- Israeli government, really, on um, on on you know these kind of technologies and you know purchasing and deploying these kind of technologies. Uh, and of course, it's absolutely horrendous. I mean, these countries. Th- this is basically exporting uh, persecution and uh, you know. Uh, uh, Oppression technology. Oppression technologies to dictatorships. Yeah. This should be sanctioned. These yes. companies should be sanctioned, uh, and they should be named and shamed. Yeah. Right. Um, why, why do you think? Why do you think that's so unlikely to happen? Is it? Is it a public perception problem? Is it that the world does not understand the gravity? Of. Uh, of, of. I mean, I of mean if, to be honest, if it was Russia that was doing it, or if it was China that was doing it. Uh, maybe the world will take will make it will find it easier to take a stand, mm. right? But it's Israel that's doing it, supposedly, uh, or what it describes itself as the only democracy in the region, which is mm. of course not. But if not it true. wasn't Israel, if it was, let's say, you know, a Dutch company, would it would? Yeah, I mean, there were Danish companies, for example, Italian companies that yeah. did this, and then I think there was enough pressure created, like put on them, that they, uh, mm. you know, they I had see. to. Yeah. Okay. But Israel, on the other hand. I think um, gets away with too much mm, when it yes. comes to selling these kind of oppression, you know, technologies of oppression, really. Yes. Especially that they're selling them. It's one. Th- of course, the the banner over here is that the the what the justification is that these technologies can be used for counterterrorism, right? And again, this is the cynical use of war and terror uh, rhetoric and uh, justifications. Uh, because, like, if you sell it, for example, to Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates and ask them, why are you doing this? They're like, oh, it's because we're fighting ISIS and because we're protecting you from ISIS. We're protecting the West from ISIS. And you should should be thanking us rather than criticizing us for using this to, like, hack into a human rights activist's laptop or something. Right. Right. Uh, So, yeah, so that's uh, that's for the technology. As for the importance of the conflict, uh, I can tell you that... During the Arab Spring, it seemed like the Palestinian uh, cause took a backseat to all of this historical stuff happening around it, but it was never forgotten. You know, it was never for. I remember, for example, that on on the days uh, this was in Lib- after the Libyan Revolution, and I, I I don't remember whether it was when the the rebels took Tripoli, mm-hmm. or was it after after Gaddafi was killed. Mm-hmm. But there was a TV interview with uh, with a Libyan man on the street, 
And he's like, we're celebrating our independence. We're celebrating our freedom. We won't forget Palestine, hmm. right? So it was always part of, uh, you know, the, like, we're not going to forget you, yeah. right? Um, after the repression that happened after 2013 and 2014 and the rise of the counter-revolution, um, it's felt, and of course, it's also that the 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 the, the core counter-revolutionary ax- countries of, of of that axis, the Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, actually work very closely with Israel. Mm. And I think I think it's, it's going to be revealed eventually. I believe very strongly that eventually the collusion, the whole thing about the Russian collusion with the Trump campaign and you know on individuals around Trump, uh, is going to 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 be revealed to be five-party collusion, really, uh, because it's not only. Uh, uh, indivi- American individuals and 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 the Russians, but also Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Israel. Mm-hmm. And some so of that's come through already, but we exactly, don't know nearly exactly. uh, all, the whole story. Exactly. So, so the, the 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 story here is that they have been working very closely with Israel, and they're trying to. Th- there's, for example, there's a lot of abuse that I would get if I tweet in Arabic. I would get a lot of abuse, racial abuse, like racist abuse against me being Palestinian, right? Mm-hmm. Coming from, of course, Saudi troll army, like basically the whole propaganda um, engine, the machine that they have online that they built on Twitter. Um, so when the Grand Return mar- March uh, um, uh, launched in um, in March, earlier in March. It was a very inspiring moment for a lot of Arabs uh, because it's like we were so defeated, we were so beaten, and we thought, we thought we're, that's it, they, they, they won, they crushed us. And then suddenly it's like there's resistance somewhere. There's resistance somewhere, and that was incredibly inspiring for a lot of... Uh, it, it was like, it was almost as if, like, the narrative around Palestine is normally... Uh, Arabs Arabs should support Palestine and Arabs should uh, help the Palestinians. But in that moment, it seemed, it seemed like the, it was the Palestinians that were helping, um, you know, um, the cause of hope. Mm. In, in the, in the Leading the way. Yeah. yeah, interesting. And of course, there's there's a lot to speak about the Grand Return March because there's uh, of, the, 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 the impetus behind it has been nonviolent, but there's been a lot of... Uh, uh, you know the Hamas movement, which I I actually see Hamas as one of the most destructive um, uh, political movements in in uh, you know destructive to the Palestinian cause in Pal- yeah. in, in the history of the Palestinian struggle yeah, disaster exactly um, it's it's not it's not it's not exactly that I have warm feelings for Fatah for example but it's the fact is that yeah. Hamas's violence has been very catastrophic totally counterproductive Ex- absolutely. And uh, so they wanted to jump on the on the protest because they wanted to basically co-opt it, and they uh, they inadvertently gave the Israelis a pretext to say that this is a Hamas organized uh, protest, uh, and that it's armed and not nonviolent. Yeah, um, and to give them basically the, the the pretext to open fire and kill uh, a lot of people, including medics, including yeah. people in wheelchairs, yeah. including children. Um, uh, the man behind it, you can actually Google his name. His name is Ahmed Aburtema. The guy who uh, had the idea. He's, of the he's, grand he march. had the idea behind uh, the Grand Return March. Uh, he's, uh, he's, I think, in his 30s. I believe he never has never seen life outside Gaza. Mm-hmm. Uh, incredibly inspiring individual. I'm, I'm in touch with him. 
um, thinking basically how to like how, what kind of joint projects or maybe we interview him or maybe we help him mm. access more. But uh, the interesting thing is that a few weeks ago there was this news that there was an 18-year-old Israeli uh, 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 teenager who refused service. Uh, he was supposed to be, you know... Um, IDF, drafted yeah. into the IDF. And he refused service, and he cited Ahmed Abu Tema as his inspiration. Wow. Yeah. So, so since we're here already, uh, Iyad, uh, just uh, maybe your thoughts on uh, the peace plan, you know, the Trump administration... Uh, It seems it seems that uh, they 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 believe that they can advance uh, negotiations between the Israelis and the Palestinians. But now, of course, in light of what happened with Saudi Arabia, what do you think are uh, the prospects of uh, the Trump administration and its credibility uh, in the Middle East? We're really seeing the final end of the two two state solution. To be honest, the whole Oslo process is is really dead and buried. Uh, and my prediction is that, I mean, you mentioned, for example, how in the United States and, of course, also in other uh, Western countries, the usage of apartheid to describe um, Israeli, Israel's reaction, sorry, Israel's relationship with, uh, with the Palestinians is controversial. It's less controversial in other parts of the world. But I think in 10 to 15 years or even in 5 to 10 years, it's not going to be controversial anymore anywhere. To describe to describe uh, the relationship as, as as an apartheid uh, as, as 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 one of apartheid. I mean, uh, Bet Salem uh, just recently used it, I believe, at the United Nations, and they said grand apartheid, which would be segregating out uh, very strictly into Bantu stands or, or little. Uh, segregated um, cantons, but it's not petty apartheid. It's there's no, um, you know, you can't drink out of the same water fountain. You can't be at the beaches with us, um, kind of thing going on inside of of Israel. So of course it's a it's a different historical uh, society. So it's not exactly the same thing. It doesn't map on you know item by item, so to speak. I mean, the essence of apartheid is when you have two permanent populations in the same country. Mm. And they don't have the same rights. Yeah. One of one of one of those populations have full rights, and another population does not. But isn't this ultimately yet a design flaw? Because Israel is, by definition, an ethnocracy. Exactly. A Jewish exactly. state. And that's, that's, that's a very design that's, flaw. That's, that's a very good point here, because, and this is this is actually why, for example, you see uh, figures on the American right, who might be anti-Semitic, but they're very supportive of Israel. Yeah. Why? Because Israel for them is the uber. Uh, you know, archetypical nation state that they want to emulate, right? The ethnic nation state. Uh, so they might not like Jews, but they like Israel mm. as a model mm. over here, right? Mm. Um, and of course, Israel is at a moment where it has to pick whether it's a democracy or whether it's a Jewish state. Yeah. And I think they've already they've already chosen, uh, they've already sele- they've they've already made that choice. Um, a Jewish state in the forty in in all of uh, Mandate Palestine. Uh, exactly, and of course, there's, there's of course the nation-state law that got passed uh, recently that says basically that only the Jewish people have the right to self-determination in this uh, in this land. Yeah. Uh, to the ex- basically creating kind of two layers, uh, creating second st- second uh, order citizenship or you know second class citizenship really for anyone who's not Jewish. Uh, But even that puts Israel in, on a collision course with its own destiny. There's also another point to, me- to to mention here, which is very important. Young people across the Western world are becoming more liberal, right? Uh, so we say, for example, that if only young people voted uh, in the United States, Trump wouldn't have won. And if only young people voted in Brexit, it would have been Remain, right? Right. Uh, 
this is not the case in Israel. Young people in Israel are shifting more and more to the right. Mm. And like if we don't like if we kind of get rid of Netanyahu, we're going to end up having an even more right wing government. Mm. So Israel is going to find itself in 10 to 15 years or five to 10 years recognized as an apartheid state uh, with uh, like there's no two state solution. So there's no there's there's no narrative because uh, Abur Tema, for example, and other uh, uh, Palestinians, including myself, they were basically adopting a one state solution nar- narrative. And we believe that uh, that's the way forward. Yeah. Uh, you know, one uh, democratic secular state uh, where everybody, regardless whether you're Jewish, whether you're Arab, whether you whatever you are, you have the same rights and you have one vote. Yeah. Of course, uh, Israelis would say, but that's the end of Israel as a Jewish state. And, and I would reply, that's also the end of Palestine as, a, as, a, as an Arab or Muslim state. Right. Uh, but that's fine. I mean, that's how you build something that's actually better and yeah. that's, that's more inclusive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so Israel is going to find itself in five to ten years an apartheid, acknowledged as apartheid, not, not, no longer controversial with a right-wing population where the rest of the world has moved to the left, I hope. Um, and with the Palestinians having rejected the two-state solution and adopting it, uh, uh, a one-state one state solution, narrative. hopefully with a narrative of nonviolence as well, um, what will that mean? Mm. And that's, that's, that's an open question. Mm. So, you know, last couple of questions here. Um, I do want to, you know, uh, get your uh, experience. Uh, you were imprisoned in, in the United Arab Emirates. Um, so uh, as one, you know, could you just tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, how that, that occurred and and what that story is? Um, well, I received, um, repeated warnings. Sometimes they're basically friendly warnings of like a concerned friend of a friend of the authorities who's, you know, who can, who can pass the message to you. And sometimes it's more direct, uh, such as actual threats. And these, uh, these, there was basically intermittent warnings between February 2011, and they really intensified towards the end of 2013. After the, the that fateful week that I described as, uh, you know, really terrible week in, in August, August 2013, um, certain things clicked for for me and for many many uh, you know observers and activists. We knew that they're going to come after everybody, not only the Islamists. We knew that they're going to come down on us like like a train. Uh, we knew that the jihadists are going to to win over, like the jihadists are going to have a field day with this because when it becomes about violence and there's no other choice, the jihadists basically uh, that's the space that they need and, and and they have. And so, at some point towards the end of 2013, I realized that I'm going to be arrested eventually, and I need to like even if I keep my head low, that's not going to protect me. Mm. Uh, the idea of losing my voice and let's say getting off Twitter, etc., was very unacceptable to me because you're get you're get you're you're giving up your only weapon, really. Mm. Like you're you, then you become completely defenseless and you're completely at their mercy, right? And it might not protect you anyway, eventually. Um, and so I received those warnings and I repeated, uh, uh, you know, even pleas from friends. Uh, who really pled with, sorry, who really pled with me to leave the country while I can? Uh, at the time, um, at the time, my wife at the time was pregnant uh, with our first child, Ismail. Ismail, uh, who's four years old now. 
um, so the idea of moving or making a sudden move or a big move in your life was not as uh, as, uh, as as possible. And keep in mind also that I had a refugee's travel document. Right. Like so, I, like even like freedom of travel was uh, was uh, almost impossible. Yeah. Um, but I thought I thought that if I keep my head low, then maybe I have a year. You know, I have a year. Uh, maybe when my kid is a year old, maybe then I can plan a move where, um, you know, I can make it to safety, right? Uh, and, of course, that didn't happen. I was arrested in the end of April uh, 2014. And it came at, at a very tragic morning because the night before that, uh, a dear friend of mine, Bassam Sabri, who was uh, not only a great Egyptian activist and one of the really gentlest and kindest and, and most intelligent human beings I've, I've ever had the pleasure of uh, of knowing, but he was also my partner. Uh, up, he was also a partner in a lot of the campaigns that we were, you know, we had worked on in the past uh, two years or three years. Um, and he fell, you know, from the balcony of a of a of an apartment in uh, in Cairo. Did he actually fall? Uh, he fell, and we 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 don't know what happened. Like okay. we don't know. Like his family refused an autopsy. Um, and the fact is that I woke up. Um, you know, mourning him. I woke up with tears in my eyes yeah. over over the loss of this great, uh, great friend and great person. Um, and I was going to work that day, and I was I never made it to work. Uh, I was arrested. I was summoned to a police station um, and put under arrest. I was told that I'm being expelled. And of course, being Palestinian, a stateless Palestinian, I mean, stateless by by stateless Palestinian, I mean, I don't even has to have uh, Palestinian citizenship. Uh, as a state of Palestine, if you consider it a state, um, so where would they send me? Like, if they say we're going to send you back to your country, well, where where is that? You know, are you going to liberate Palestine to send me to it or something? And you just know? for background, you were born in Kuwait, but you immediately after went to Dubai and spent all of your life in the United Arab. Yeah, I mean, the so whole you born had no Kuwait, other home. I mean, the whole born Kuwait thing is really almost by by coincidence because right. my my mother. Um, yeah, this was 1977. The UAE was was not as developed, and Kuwait was actually more developed when it comes to the medical sector, etc. And my mom's, uh, my mother grew up in Kuwait. My mother's family lived in Kuwait, so uh, she traveled to Kuwait so that she gives birth uh, near her own mother, like yeah. my grandmother. Uh, so I was ten year, ten days old when I like when right. when I was arrived back to the United Arab Emirates. Right. So like uh, like people look at my passport like well, you know and they're like born in Kuwait like I've never been to Kuwait since I was ten years old ten days old right you know? right yeah. um, so the United Arab Emirates was the only country I've ever known and that yeah. I I felt this 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 almost instinctive belonging to right so, yeah. so it's natural for you to feel this affinity to the country like I was thirty seven years old when I was arrested right yeah. Um, so yeah, so so they're like we're expelling you, um, and of course, I, I, at the time I was shocked but not surprised. We can say, and I was very worried about um, about you know uh, my wife at the time, and you know she was pregnant, um, and there was always this fear that what if they w- instead of expelling me. What if they expel me back to Egypt? And I'm like, in Egypt, I'd get even more in trouble, especially that the, the campaigns that called for my arrest started in Egypt, in Egyptian social media. Um, I would disappear. I would like basically, you know, be disappeared, right? Like nobody would know what happened to this guy. 
on the other hand, if they if if the word comes out that Iyad has been arrested, and I was already like kind of a micro celebrity on social media at the time. Um, it, if it comes, if the word comes out that Iyad has been arrested, and there's the whole free Iyad hashtag, etc., I know how the UAE authorities would do would, would would react. They would get embarrassed, and they would find a reason to keep me. Either they're going to expel me right away to the first country that would take me, and that would be Egypt. Uh, and of course, they have influence with the Egyptian authorities, or they would find a reason to arrest me and put me in jail for ten years or five years or you know, uh, fifteen years or whatever, because they'll actually charge me with a crime. So when when they actually arrested me, they didn't charge me with any crime. It was basically completely, um, you know, extrajudicial. It's basically leave because we want you to leave. Like you didn't. You, did I break any laws? No, you didn't. Uh, is this something I did? Maybe just think about your own history. Like maybe you did something. Right. But this is uh, like. In Arabic, they call it awamir samiyah, higher orders, right? So I'm in jail for two weeks, um, or yeah, I mean, almost two, weeks. almost more than more than two weeks. Oh, really? Um, in, it was more than two weeks. It, I think I think it was on uh, around two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm strategizing. I'm thinking that I need to get out of here before they find a reason to keep me here longer or or expel me, you know, to Egypt, and then I'm dead, right? Um, so I accepted, I, I came up with a scheme and I told them, listen, Malaysia allows, uh, so they, uh, and this is like, I'm, I'm talking to my cellmates and my cellmates are like, a lot of them, that cell or the Arab cell is full of Palestinians because every cell fill, fills up like the, 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 the Bangladeshis and the Pakistanis and the Indians, etc. the cell fills up and then gets emptied because they get expelled. The Palestinians, the Palestinians and the Syrians, there's nowhere to send them. And of course they resist being like the Syrians, were being expelled to Syria, but they always resist being expelled because you know that they yeah. would be drafted, etc. So, so it it was basically Palestinians such as myself and and Syrians in that cell, uh, and of course some Arab nationalities. But then you know they uh, you know they they kind of either they get out of it or they find a way to to uh, to get to 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 not get deported, or maybe some of them do get deported. Um. So yeah, so I, 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 uh, in conversations with them, it, the idea of Malaysia came up. They're like, Malaysia allows visa-free travel to, to Palestinians, and you are Palestinian. Uh, so maybe that's what you should say, right? So I meet the deportation officer. I remember his name was Ali Zol, he's Sudanese. And he's, he, you know, uh, he looks at my, he looks at, he's like, can, can you give me your passport? And he looks at my passport, and there's this immense frown of frustration on his face. Uh, when he sees that it is an Egyptian travel document, he's like, well, we don't know what to do with your with you guys, you know? And I said, listen, I accept um, uh, deportation to Malaysia. He's like, fine, let's see what we can do. So eventually I talk my way through it um, and I and I ensure that I buy my own ticket, etc. Um, my family basically helps me with, uh, you know, the logistics outside um, and I'm expelled to Malaysia. Uh, of course, uh, they send a police officer with me to the airport. Uh, I see my family at the airport, uh, very, you know, very emotional. Um, and I leave my country for the last time. Uh, of course, you know, the memories are indelible. Yeah. Right? Uh, and I go to Malaysia and the Malaysian authorities do not let me in because I have a refugee travel document. I'm a Palestinian, but I don't have a Palestinian passport. And I end up stranded in Kuala Lumpur Airport for 26 days. And I remember during that time we spoke, Vilabas, yeah. uh, because, you know, I told you what happened and, uh, you know, you really came through for me at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So eventually I managed to uh, procure a Palestinian passport through connections with the Palestinian authorities, through friends. Uh, thankfully, I mean, it's really like interesting here, but uh, Bassam Sabri and myself, we kind of created a, a, a kind of a small uh, elite select group of activists. Uh, and we, we, we thought that we want to create this group, like a kind of a networking group to help activists if they get in trouble. Right, uh, a, a central point where if there's an alert, you can put it in there, and then you have like 50 different activists pooling their network to help you. And I didn't imagine that I would be one of the people who will need that, right? But that network really came through for me because uh, I, you know, normally it takes three months to, to get a Palestinian passport. I got it in two weeks. I got it sent to me uh, from Ramallah to like uh, basically a delegation that was traveling to Malaysia. They basically handed it to me. And brought it they, to They Cape. were coming to Malaysia anyway, but basically, mm. you know, uh, uh, I see. it was a diplomatic officer at the embassy who came and picked me up. Mm. Um, and, you know, the Palestinian uh, embassy in Kuala Lumpur is very helpful. Um, they didn't know who I was, but they knew like, why is this, like, why is, why, why is the president's office calling us about this guy, <laughs> you know? Um, so eventually I make my way to, to Norway, to Oslo. I was invited to the Oslo Freedom Forum um, as a speaker. And of course that comes with an invitation from the foreign ministry of uh, like the Norwegian foreign ministry. Um, and I spoke in, in Oslo in October 2014 and then I applied for asylum in Norway. Mm. And, and that yeah. speech you gave, I recommend everybody listen to because it, is, it is, is really incredible. It's a fantastic speech. On YouTube. And there's a second one in 2018, too. Yes. yes yeah. Which is also very informative. Um, uh, it's a different kind of speech. So both, really, both of them are, are excellent. Let me ask you uh, just a, a really quick question here because we're running out of time. Um, so part of your politics are anti-authoritarian. You know, we have the United States, which has traditionally, unfortunately, backed authoritarian regimes, uh, it seems like the United States doesn't have an interest in having independent democracy because this is a strategic region of the world. There's ports, there's oil, um, there are a lot of resources at stake. It's not just a simplistic thing where the United States would want to take the oil for itself. Uh, the more uh, sophisticated geopolitical analysis uh, analyses have noted that this is kind of about controlling the flow of resources, energy resources in, in particular. Um, at the same time, you, you, you're pushing then for democracy. You're pushing against authoritarianism. How do you see this? Um, is that your vision for the Middle East? And can you put that in relationship um, to the United States? What is your... What is the relationship to the U.S. and, but ultimately, what's your vision for the for the Middle East? Well, well, scholars about democracy in the Middle East they kind of identify three reasons, not just the oil. So, oil is one of, of the reasons, but the other reason really was the war on terror, and you know the security. They basically uh, there's a security relationship over there uh, that actually even continued with even with uh, regimes, for example, like Gaddafi's that was basically rehabilitated because he was going to help with the war on terror, right? Uh, and then there's Israel. Uh, and that's that's basically you know uh, this this triangle, which is a different kind of triangle here, that um, you know binds uh, or controls, let's say, U.S. Uh, or you know U.S. Um, strategic interest in the region, right? Um, we had hoped in 2011, and after really 20, 2009, coming back to the to, to Obama's Cairo speech, uh, we had hoped that American the American ruling establishment has recognized or can recognize uh, 
that it's actually better for them strategically to back democracy in this region. Um, because uh, like, like America was not always reviled in the Middle East. Uh, in in there was an Egyptian uprising, I believe, in nineteen uh, twelve. Can you Google it? Or, or nineteen nineteen nine? Well, yeah. early twentieth so century. There, there was yeah, yeah. There was an there was an Egyptian uprising in the earliest early early twentieth century, uh, and we we have some pictures of that, and we can see that they raised the American flag. They erased the American flag because, uh, you know, the Wilsonian principles, self-determination, etc. They were very inspired by that. Uh, Kawakibi, Abdurrahman al-Kawakibi, who's a, who's a Syrian um, uh, uh, Arab intellectual, uh, we, we named our, our NGO, our think tank, after him because we're very inspired by his work. In his book, he wrote a book called The Nature of Tyrannies, Masara al-Tabai' al-Istibdad, in 1900, I believe, it was published. Um, he, he died in 1902. Um, and he describes uh, America very favorably, right? Because he sees it, he, he, you know, he's, he was inspired by, the, by the, the, the principles of the U.S. Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. So America was not always reviled. It was actually an inspiration at some point. Uh, and then we got, we got to the Cold War and we got to this really Machiavellian real politic kind of um, mm-hmm. view Kissinger. of the world. Kissinger view Exactly, of the and the support of Israel, of course. Um, and that completely turned the Middle East into probably the world's most anti-American, um, you know, region. Mm. Interestingly, if you go back to look at the pictures um, of the protests by the Libyans after removing Gaddafi uh, in 2011, you will find American flags all over the streets. And these are Libyans who basically classically were very anti-American. But they're like, thank you, because you recognize this is this is they saw it as as kind of contrition. They're like, you stood against us all this time, but you recognize our call for freedom and you helped us. Mm. And Mm. thank you. And you can see those pictures. I actually like um, um, I tried uh, <laughs> tried to include some of them in my book, but then uh, you know the publishers like we don't want we we don't want to, we don't want to print pictures in the book, right? Mm. Um, so so it seemed like that's that's a moment of of uh, you know th- that's that's a moment where and at the same time you know I was online at the time and a lot of support came from individual americans like individual americans are like were really inspired by your by your movement really inspired by your by by the courage of the you know of the protesters uh, and i felt i even felt like the occupy wall street movement that actually uh, kicked off after that was also a little bit inspired by yeah. i mean i was speaking at a conference at a at a workshop earlier this year uh, and it was basically a coalition of uh, american uh, you know, progressives and, and, and left-leaning, um, um, you know, organizers in, in New York. Um, and one of the organizers, she stood up and she said, if it wasn't for the Arab Spring, I wouldn't have become an activist, mm-hmm. you know. And that was incredibly inspiring for me, incredibly, you know, heartwarming for yeah. me. Um, so, I mean, I, I think most, uh, and uh, keep in mind also that America has this cultural uh, um, presence and this cultural uh, uh, kind soft of soft power. power yeah. So most most uh, Arabs, I would say, recognize that American society is one thing, and then American elites and the ruling establishment is another. Right, right. 
so there's always this hope that maybe America will live up to its, uh, to its promises. It's like the liberal promises of the American Declaration of Independence, the idea that all men are created equal. Um, you know, and so there's, there's this kind of idealism that I hope hasn't died, mm. you know? And that's why we actually were very disappointed with Obama because like, we're thinking, when are we going to get another U.S. president mm. who comes to your turf to speak to you and, and say that, you know, we have shared values and shared interests and we want to reset uh, a man who is humble and he looks like, you know, he seems like a kind and good person, a compassionate person and a man of the world, you know. When are we going to get a chance like that again? But to know? stop stop supporting uh, Saudi Arabia and, and other places, I mean, is that these are the kinds of things that you would like to see? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I would like to see uh, a much more... I, I mean, I, I believe that confrontation with dictatorship prevents war. Yeah. Confrontation is not war. I mean, standing up to a bully is is actually preventing a, a fight rather than it than being a fight, right? And the, the really frustrating thing when I speak to this to a lot of Americans, a lot of Westerners in general, especially people who have been very, very, uh, you know, their political realities have been almost traumatized by the Iraq war, is that they think it's, they, they think it's either it's either it's all or none, you know? It's either that we're warmongers, neoconservatives, or appeasing dictators and, you know, basically smiling in their face, right? Uh, that, that, and that's not the case. Both of these, we reject both of these extremes. And I think there is a kind of a, a middle road in the middle, yeah. um, which is to confront dictatorships and don't be hypocritical. I mean, why are you so, you, you speak about democracy and human rights when you speak about Iran, the Iranian regime, but then what about the Saudis? Do the right. Saudis not yeah. deserve uh, human rights, you know, like, and, 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 you know, democracy and human rights? Um, so if if this happens, if this um um, if this moment, the, this post-Jamal Khashoggi moment, uh, uh, ends up with a fundamental change in the in in the Western in Western relationship with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, a lot would have, something very important would have been achieved. Yeah, and of course, uh, it, it, it remains up to us to build upon that. All right, awesome. Well, Yad. Bella Bess, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm wishing you guys the, the best in your travels. Thank you. Thank you.